The story of church history is the story of faithful women and faithful men doing what's right, believing the truth, even when it is extremely difficult, even when they are put under enormous pressure, even when it has meant that they lost their lives. One of the earliest martyrs that we know of was named Ignatius. He was eaten by lions because he would not go along with the Roman government. We know of people like Thomas Cranmer, who was uh, burned at the stake because of his teaching of the truth. We know of the French Huguenots in 1572, where by modest estimates in one day 20,000 people were killed because of their faith and declaration of the truth. We know of people like Lady Jane Grey, and Anne Boleyn, and Charles Spurgeon, and John Calvin, many of whom were killed for their faith. Even if they weren't, they were declaring the truth, and it made them very unpopular in their day because of what they would say, because of what they were doing. They were facing immense pressure to be quiet, to say what we want you to say, do what we want you to do. That pressure continues to this day. There are Christians in this country, on this continent, and all around the world who are facing immense pressure to be quiet, get in line, say what we want you to say, believe what we want you to believe, and do what we want you to do. Where does that pressure come from, that immense pressure that weighs down on us? The answer to that question, I believe, is given to us in Revelation chapter 13. That's where we're at today in our Bibles, Revelation chapter 13. This is on page 972. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided either in the chair under you or in front of you, page 972, it's right toward the end of the Bible. If this is your first time using the Bible, or maybe first time in a long time, the large numbers are called chapters, the small numbers represent verses, and uh, today we're in chapter 13. Last week in chapter 12, we saw that Satan hates you. Satan is represented as the dragon in Revelation chapter 12. Satan hates you. And this week, we find he's not alone. He's not going about his work on his own. He has those who work with him, who pressure you from within and without. This section of Revelation, chapter 13, describes two beasts who help the dragon carry out his hate-filled agenda against people who believe that Jesus saves and satisfies. Even before I read this text, I want to talk to you for a minute, maybe a few minutes, about why I'm interpreting Revelation the way that I am. Uh, I'm confident in the way that I'm interpreting the book of Revelation, but I also know that some things that I'm saying probably strike you as a little strange or maybe a little different than you've heard, and I'm okay with that. And I have heard Revelation preached from a variety of perspectives. I've studied it from a variety of perspectives. But I'd like to kind of explain the driving force behind why I'm interpreting Revelation this way. We read Revelation differently than we read most other books of the Bible. So if you read Genesis or you read Romans, like in our men's book study, or you read Psalms, you're going to read all of those differently from each other, and you're going to read those differently from, than you would from Revelation. Uh, and that's because it's a different genre. The book of Revelation is a different kind of literature than those other books of the Bible. So you read an email differently than you read the Chicago Tribune 
differently than you read a history book, differently than you read the Pulitzer Prize winning fiction book. That's because they're all different genres from one another. And Revelation is a different genre. And so that means that I'm convinced, I'm reading Revelation this way, that Revelation is primarily not just about the past, and probably more popularly in in our circles, primarily not just about the future. It's primarily a way of describing human history, especially from the time of Christ's death and burial and resurrection up to the point of Jesus' uh, return, which we just sang about, and is describing that era that we are living in, the time between his death and resurrection and so forth, to the time of his return, is describing that time period from a variety of perspectives. So it's less like, reading the book of Revelation is less like watching a movie of human history and more like going to an art gallery. Not a big fan of art galleries, but imagine walking into an art gallery and there's like seven pictures all portraying the same event in human history. So maybe it's, I've seen some paintings of this, uh, of a castle next to a river that's on fire. The castle is on fire. And so maybe one of those pictures is of somebody zoomed way out, like he's on the outskirts of town, and all he sees is that the sky is orange over a particular part of the city. Can't really see what's going on, it's too far away. Another painting of the exact same night in human history is of people standing on the bridge watching the, excuse me, the castle burning in the distance. It's not too far away. Now you can actually see that it is a castle and it's actually on fire. That's what the orange is. And you can see sort of the faces of the people watching that particular event. Maybe you have down in the river, you have people that are in, the boat, in boats watching the castle burning. And so you see pictures of those boats with the orangeness in the background. And maybe then a final picture would be of somebody who's next to the castle watching it burn, trying to make sure that his family is all safe there in that part of the city. All those are picturing the same event, but they're all vastly different perspectives. And I think that Revelation is like that, describing human history, describing the era of human history that we are living in as the church from a variety of different perspectives so that we'll see the truth from a variety of different angles. And one of the reasons I read Revelation this way, and encourage you to as well, uh, if you don't read Revelation this way, it's okay. Like, you can still be a member of our church and be a fine, faithful Christian if you read it differently, as uh, we know many people who have. But one of the reasons I read Revelation this way is because I fundamentally approach the Bible asking this question every single time of every single passage I read. What did this mean to the first readers? And if you can't answer that question with your interpretation, you need to probably find a different interpretation of a a way of reading that passage that would have been faithful to those first readers. So, perhaps some of you have read letters from a Civil War soldier writing to his mother back home or to his new bride back home. And he's writing about the experiences there at Gettysburg or Fredericksburg or Manassas or wherever else. And you read it like, well, clearly this is telling us something about the future here. No, it's not. He's describing what's happening on the battlefield, and he's asking how things are going back in his hometown. And so we wouldn't start by assuming that that letter from a Civil War soldier is to us or about us. It's for our benefit. That's why it's been recorded. 
But Revelation here, we don't assume that it's talking only about something that was in the distant future. We assume that the first readers would have benefited immensely by reading that letter, the letter that Revelation is. So I believe that Revelation was written by an apostle named John who was in prison because he was annoying the Roman government by not being quiet about who Jesus was. And I gather all that from Revelation 1.9. I assume based on a lot of factors that this book was written around the year 95, and it was written to actual Christians in actual churches in first century cities like Ephesus and Smyrna and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And we know it was written to Christians in those seven actual churches about 60 years after Jesus' ministry here on earth. And so then I assume that I have to understand what this passage meant to those people, those Christians living in those churches in those actual cities, before I ever ask, what does this mean to me here now? Okay, so I hope that makes sense to you, that we're trying to kind of put ourselves in the minds of the first Christians who would have read this, and then we can understand what it means to us today. So some read this book, assuming it was entirely fulfilled around the year 70. Uh, Some read it assuming it's all going to be, almost all entirely going to be fulfilled at the end of time. I think there are parts of it that are going to be fulfilled at the end of time. I just don't think that's what most of it is about. And so, uh, what I'm trying to do is say that Revelation is, generally speaking, describing how we as Christians should live faithful Christian lives in the midst of the intense pressure to cave and to stop preaching the gospel uh, that, that... people that I described earlier, the Thomas Cranmers and Charles Spurgeons and Lady Jane Grey and people like this who were facing immense pressure, how did it help them? How would it have encouraged them as well as it would have encouraged the first uh, century believers? So with that as background as to why I'm preaching Revelation the way I am, let me read Revelation 13. I'm going to read it all the way from the beginning. It's not that long. It's only 18 verses, but it has some weird stuff in it. So if this is your first time uh, to hear Revelation in a while, brace yourself a little bit. Uh, Revelation 13, verses 1 through 18. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Whatever version you have will be totally fine. I'll read aloud. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding Calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. The message of Revelation 12 last week was that you can know God's victory over the dragon, Satan, is certain, despite the fierce battle you face. The message of this passage is related. This is really, chapters 12 through 14 is one larger unit, and we're kind of dividing it up into three smaller sections so we can hone in on some of these Details, whether they're clear details or unusual details in some cases here. But I'm putting the message of this section into the form of an urgent command because I think that's what John was doing implicitly. Here's what chapter 13 is saying Do not bow to the anti God, or we could say God hating forces of this world. Do not bow to the God hating forces of this world. We as Christians need to hold fast to Christ as he holds fast to us, as we sang a few minutes ago. We need to hold fast to Jesus in the face of people and institutions and cultural pressures who make you want to lose your grip on Christ and instead cause you to focus on anyone or anything that will make you Stop talking about Jesus so much. Stop going in his way. Stop saying he's the only way to be saved and he's the only one who will satisfy you. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to urge you to kind of lay your guard down. Because again, I know this passage sounds weird. It's not like something you would have read in most parts of the Bible itself, much less in other parts of literature. And you might be here, sitting here, and wondering like, how did I get into this mess? And where are the exit so I can get out as fast as possible. They're in the back. So these are going to get you lost. But if you go back, that's where, that's where you'd go out. But that's the closest escape hatch. But I would urge you not to run for it. Because I think before you rush out of here in a panic, you should hear what this passage has to say. You might run out saying, you know, Christians are as strange as we thought they were. <laughs> panic blindly. But instead, what I would say is you need to hear this. This passage is for you. This passage is designed for your ears to hear and for your heart to respond to. And we think it's super important that you hear it. This passage is talking about two different forces. I don't know if you picked up on that. There are these two different beasts. They're associated with the dragon, which again, from last week, is Satan himself, the enemy of God. And what we know is that there's a primary enemy, that's Satan, but he does his work through these kind of secondary enemies the two beasts, one from the sea and one from the earth, 
who are kind of linked together at the hip in some ways. Verses 1 through 10, in this section, verses 1 through 10, John is warning us to not bow to political forces. And I'll explain how we get there, why we assume that that's what we're talking about, political forces. And then verses 11 through 18, John warns us not to bow to religious and economic forces. So political forces in verses 1 through 10, religious and economic forces in 11 through 18. And in this whole thing, this whole passage, what John is telling you to do is do not bow to these God-hating forces of this world. You notice in verse 1 of chapter 13, a beast is rising out of the sea. John has a vision of this beast. In other words, it didn't actually happen. He has a vision of something that, that happened in, in this vision. Uh, not the clearest way to say that necessarily, but all that to say is rising out of the sea. Do you remember, maybe if you've read ahead in Revelation, in chapter 21 it says that there comes a time when there is no more sea. And you think, okay, maybe that means there's no water in the new heavens and the new earth. That's not what that means. Sea, in the Bible, is often a way of depicting evil and forces of evil. And so if this beast, nasty, ugly, seven-headed, ten-horned beast is coming out of the sea, it's saying it's evil. That's where it's coming from. That's what it's coming to do is to promote evil. And we notice that this beast is blasphemous. He has blasphemous names on its head. Blasphemy is just a way of describing like irreverence toward God or irreverence toward something that's holy. And here he has blasphemous names on its heads. The fact that it has ten horns and seven heads means it looks very similar to the dragon that it's associated with and that it's working in tandem with. We saw that back in chapter 12, verse 3. This dragon with seven heads and ten horns. So here, it's just telling us there's this nasty beast and it's associated with the dragon, and it looks like a lot of different animals all mashed together, if you notice that. Where in the world is John getting this vision from? If Revelation is the weirdest book of the Bible, the second weirdest book of the Bible is Daniel, and that's where he's getting this from. And I don't mean to say that in an irreverent way, I'm just saying Daniel is very complicated, just like Revelation is often very complicated. And he's taking an image from Daniel 7, where in Daniel you see one form of government, one government, overtake another one, and destroy another one, and destroy another one, like one kind of eating the other, so to speak, being pictured by bears, leopards, lions, maybe tigers, oh my, and all that to say they're kind of like one upping each other. And here John is taking all of those, and they're all combined and this is where I'm getting the idea from Daniel 7 that this is talking about government. This is talking about political reigns, people who want to kind of dog-eat-dog world, like keep one-upping each other and destroy the people who are around them and say, you're going to live our way or get on the highway. And that seemed to be what was happening in John's day. And those who were living in this era were certainly experiencing that kind of pressure from the Roman Empire. This would have been written not too long after a guy named Nero, a terrible uh, ruler in the Roman Empire, had been reigning and did lots of terrible things to Christians. And lots of other Roman empires are coming along, or Roman emperors, I should say, are coming along and doing lots of other terrible things to Christians. And these Christians are reading this saying, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. It is a terrible situation to have to try and follow Jesus when it seems like there's a beast that is trying to destroy us that looks like a bear and a lion and a leopard all mashed together. 
It has seven heads, and one of those heads seemed to have a mortal wound. And maybe that makes you think of Genesis 3 and the idea that uh, from the very early parts of the Bible, we have a promise that Jesus is going to win. Okay, that's like, there's like a shadow, there's a, a hint of that in Genesis 3, where we have Jesus' heel crushing the head of the serpent. And here it seems that that's probably what John is alluding to. This mortal wound is on one of the heads of this beast, but its mortal wound was healed. In other words, it seems like it's impenetrable. It seems like it's undefeatable. And people marveled as they followed the beast. What we're going to see next week in chapter 14 is that there are a different kind of people in the world. Not people who follow the beast, but people who follow the lamb. And what I'm going to tell you is that you do one or the other. There's nobody who's following this middle path who's kind of like, I'm not going to decide. You, you follow either the lamb, which is Jesus, or the beast, which is the enemy. And this passage is urging you, don't follow the beast. Follow the lamb. Put your faith in Jesus who died on a cross and shed his blood and was buried and then rose again gloriously. And when you put your hope in him, your sins are forgiven. That's what this passage is urging you to do. Follow that lamb who was slain for you. This beast is blasphemous, and people who worship it, in verse 4, are themselves blasphemous because they're worshiping the beast and saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? How is that blasphemous? It sounds a lot like Exodus 15.11. Who is like the Lord? It's like people are taking their worship that's designed to go to God, and they're saying, oh no, this beast is way cooler way more impressive, way more powerful. So let's follow him. Who's like this, this beast? There's nobody that can stand up against him. And we would say, no. Who's like the Lord? Who can stand against him? Who can fight against him? Instead of saying, who's like the Lord, they're giving the attention to the beast and marveling at him and worshiping him. And in doing so, their eyes are off Christ. And that's the beast's whole goal, is to get your eyes off Christ. And he doesn't care how he does it. He doesn't care what he uses to get your eyes off Christ. Maybe he'll even use somebody else in our church to help get your eyes off Christ. And maybe he'll do that by saying, you know, I really don't like that preacher. Let's complain about him so we can get him out of here. Please don't, but I mean, I don't, I don't totally blame you in some cases. Man, I really don't like X and I really don't like Y, so let's complain about it to each other. And let's kind of get this movement going in our church to get this changed. There are godly ways to do things and there are ungodly ways to do things. And I would just ask you to do it the godly way. And in so doing, not let the beast who's empowered by the dragon get a foothold in our church. Please do that. Please do things in a godly way so that the evil one does not get a say in how things go here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church. Once again, this beast is blasphemous. He's speaking irreverently. In verse 5, he's given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. He's allowed, to, he's allowed to exercise authority. Who allowed him? God allowed him. That's just what theologians call a divine passive. doesn't actually mention God, but he's the one who's allowing him. He's the one who's giving him this opportunity for 42 months. Other parts of the Bible would tell us why this is the case why the Lord would even allow this in the first place. It's so that your faith will be tested and you'll come through purified, more eager to follow the Lord no matter what. It'll be in books like First Peter in the Bible. 
But he's given a limited amount of time, 42 months. We saw last week, sometimes that's described as 1,260 days. Sometimes that's described as time, times and half a time. Sometimes that's described here as 42 months. All talking about a period of time. Not a super short period of time, but not forever either. But that time that is given by God in which this beast is allowed to exercise his authority. And he blasphemes against God, blasphemes his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. What I want you to notice here is three beautiful ways that this passage describes to you as a Christian. If your faith is in Christ, look at these beautiful ways that he describes Christians. Those who have their dwelling in heaven, which means that you are God's dwelling itself. A reminder that the New Testament teaches that Christians are themselves the temple of God, the place where God dwells. So those who dwell in heaven in verse 6. Verse 7, the saints. Can you believe that? You're called a saint? It doesn't take dying and then like hundreds of years later you become a saint. A saint is anyone who has been made holy by their faith in Jesus Christ and their repentance from their sin. And you are a saint if you have done that, if you have put your faith in Christ. If not, we would urge you to become a saint today and put your faith in Christ. And there's a third description of those who are God's people. It is in verse 8. It's people who have their name in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the Lamb is the one who gives life. The Lamb is the one who has the book who tells us who are His people. And again, how do you know if your name is in that book of life? You know it because you're following the Lamb. If you have questions about that, if if you are the type of person who, like me at various times in my life, you're the type of person who goes to bed wondering, am I actually a Christian? Because I sin in some stupid ways. And I have terrible thoughts sometimes. And sometimes I even wonder if the Bible is true. And you're lying there in bed night after night saying, Lord, if you're there, please forgive me of my sins. For the 747th time in a row. And if you're like that, we would love to talk to you about how you can know. Because the Bible says... You can know, and it is good to know that your sins are forgiven. You don't have to die wondering if you're a Christian. You can know you're a Christian now. You can know you follow the Lamb. We want to help you with that. But these people who have their names written in the book of life, and it has been that way from before the foundation of the world. That's why in the bulletin we said, we're here to worship the God who planned salvation. He designed it from beginning to end. This God-hating force, this God-hating political system that is designed to take your eyes off the Lamb and make life difficult for you if you try to follow Him, this force is powerful. It's an agent of Satan, the dragon. It seems to be undefeatable. We saw that with his head being wounded, but then he was healed. He's blasphemous. He's under God's control. He's opposed to God and His people. He's worshipped by people the world over but he's only worshipped by those who are not destined for salvation. We see a second beast in verses 11 through 17 described. This second beast is separate from the first one. This one comes out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. This comes from Daniel chapter 8. Again, Daniel 7 and 8 is super formative in John's mind. So I would urge you this afternoon. I thought about reading through those passages with you. There's simply not time. I know sometimes there's not attention span for us to even kind of be able to get our minds behind what's going on there. But if you are willing to give you a little bit of time this afternoon and you read Daniel 7 and 8, I think this passage will have a lot more weight to it and a lot more clarity to it. 
This is Daniel 8, verse 3, I believe, that they had two horns like a lamb, spoke like a dragon. That means he sounds a lot like the one that he's here representing, Satan. He mimics the true lamb. Have you noticed this? You have the dragon, you have the first beast, you have the second beast. We could call it the unholy trinity, we could call it whatever you want, but they're mimicking God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're a parody. They're trying to get you to worship them, not Christ. And so you have this second beast mimicking the true lamb in verse 11. You have him serving the first beast, drawing attention to the first beast, performing miracles. It sounds a lot like Elijah calling down fire in the Old Testament. He deceives earth dwellers. That's a way of referring throughout Revelation to non-Christians, people who are not heaven dwellers, like we saw a few verses ago, but people who are earth dwellers. This is their home. This is where their citizenship is. He calls for an image that represents the first beast. That sounds like Daniel 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are commanded to bow before the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and they refuse to. And refusing to get with the program, to bow to the system, to get along with the agenda, is going to mean that you're going to be held accountable for not worshiping the first beast. We see that in verse 15. It was given, the second beast was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace because they would not bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And it causes people from every class to be marked with their allegiance to the first beast. In verses 16 and 17, there's this differentiation between those who are marked who follow God and those who are marked to follow the evil one. And again, these are invisible signs, invisible to us, Visible to God. He knows who's marked which way. But it's simply saying that there's nobody who's in the middle. There's nobody who's like, I'm ah-religious. You know, like I'm not one way or the other. I just live my life. You are either following the Lamb or you are following the beast. We would urge you to throw your allegiance in with Christ. Verse 18 is probably one of the most interesting, I guess, verses in the Bible. How many of you guys want me to talk about what 666 means? (laughs) It's super interesting. Okay, a couple of hands go up. I'll talk about it. I was going to talk about it either way. So I know that 666 is, is interesting to people simply because of one anecdotal story I'll tell you from about 20 years ago. When I was in seminary, late in college, somewhere in there, I was in the South for college and seminary, and there's a restaurant there called Zaxby's, which is delicious, and we need to get it here in Chicago. But I was at Zaxby's with some seminary friends, or college friends, I don't remember which, like which exactly year this was. And in this restaurant, much like they would do around here, like Panera or something, they're calling out order numbers. And when we walked in, it was at like 661. And then the next one, 661. And it's getting up to this, and we're sitting there like laughing, like, are they actually going to say 666? 664, order 665, there's this pause, order 66, okay, that's one way to get around it, and then they go right back to it, order 667, like, even somebody in some random restaurant in the South knew, I shouldn't say this number out loud, (laughs) I don't exactly know why, like, is there some bad luck associated with saying the number 666, I've said it like five times in the last couple minutes, so watch out, but nonetheless... Many people throughout church history have assumed that the way to figure out what the number 666 represents is to use 
numbers associated with letters. So in other words, the letter A in English would represent the number one, and the letter B would represent the number two, all the way down to the end. And I will just go ahead and be honest with you, I did the math for myself, and even if you add the title pastor at the end, my name does not equal 666. If you want to check that yourself, I'm sure there's some like beastcalculator.com or something out there where you can figure this out for yourself. All that to say, from very early on in church history, people assumed, well, if we work these numbers a certain way, it's going to come out and show us who the bad guy is, who this antichrist is. And very early on, people assumed it was Nero Caesar. The only problem was you had to misspell Caesar to get it to count to 666. And so then people start coming up with like, well, maybe, if we, maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it just means like, Caesar Augustus, or you just like start thinking of who somebody bad in human history is. And so this is really the, the rule of how you would figure out what 666 is. Figure out who you want it to be, and then start messing with the numbers however you want it to be. And ta-da, it says Hitler. See, that's who the Antichrist is. People have said that. People have said it's Ronald Wilson Reagan. Oh, there's six letters in each of his names. Or Reagan, Ronald Wilson Reagan. There's six letters in each of his names. That's got to be who, the, who this is talking about. And this is where, again, I urge us to step back and say, what would this have meant to the first Christians getting this from this random island called Patmos where John is writing this, and they're reading it and going, oh yeah, there's a guy somewhere down the road whose last name is Hitler. He's going to be a real jerk. So that's who that's talking about. So much for this mean anything to us. No, it doesn't do that. This would have meant something to them right then. So I would just urge you not to fall into these games where you're trying to figure out who is today's Antichrist and who is it actually. Maybe he's in the White House right now, or maybe he's in Russia right now. Russia has six letters in it. It's got to be that. And we just get into these crazy games. So what does 666 mean? Throughout Revelation, we have seen that the number seven is very significant. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each of them at some point in Revelation are referred to with the number seven attached to them. So if you put Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, you have 777. If each time seven is used there, it's referring to perfection, to God, to glory, and so forth. So 666 simply simply seems to mean, and I'm happy to be wrong on this. If you want to prove me wrong later, that's fine. But it seems to mean... This unholy trinity of dragon, first beast, and second beast, or dragon, beast, and false prophet, as he's called later on in Revelation, are all mimicking God, which we've seen multiple times in this passage, and I haven't even pointed out all the ways they're trying to parody God. They're mimicking God, but they're not glorious. They're not perfect. They're actually totally wicked and deceitful. So the number 666 seems to be a way of saying to even the first Christians who read this, There is mimicking, there is parodying God, but they're not actually God. So don't worship them. And that's all it seems to be saying, is there's this spirit of antichrist. And that's the way John refers to it in the book of 1 John. He refers to the the spirit of antichrist throughout 1 John. 2 Thessalonians 4 factors into all this. I'm saying it's kind of complex at times, but I would urge you not to jump to random conclusions just because they seem to match up with some part of human history, particularly in America, particularly in the 20th or 21st century. But as you see behind me, 
this sermon has a title. I titled it from a phrase in this passage, A Call for Endurance and Faith. This is from the end of verse 10. What I want to do here right at the end is just tell you three ways to respond to this truth of this passage, that we should not bow to the God-hating forces of this world, whatever form they take. And the first is in verse 10 there. This is a call for endurance. How do you endure? In other words, how do you keep following Jesus when it's really hard When people hate you because you keep proclaiming the truth and you won't get in line, you won't play the system, you won't bow to the agenda, how do you follow Jesus? You keep enduring. And I want to urge you, one of the ways to keep enduring is by thinking of other people, by meditating on the way that other people in the past have endured. The way to do that is by reading Christian biography. If you have young children, I recommend a book called Church History ABCs by a guy named uh, Stephen Nichols. It's Really beautifully done, brilliantly done. So Church History ABCs, even for those of us adults, I love reading that book to my children because I learn something new every time. For those of us who are not children, (laughs) or perhaps don't have children living in our home right now, I, as you would expect, brought a stack of books. So I'm just going to quickly rifle through a stack of biographies that I think many of you would really enjoy. Many of them are eminently readable. And so I'm just going to rifle through them, and if you want to borrow one for a small fee or not a small fee, that is fine. So, uh, this is Shadow of the Almighty, the Life and Testament of Jim Elliot by Elizabeth Elliot. So this is about her husband Jim who went and lost his life uh, in the jungle. Eight Women of Faith by Michael Haken. Spurgeon, I'm just going to go with the names. Jonathan Edwards. This one by John Piper talks about the lives of Charles Spurgeon, George Mueller, and Hudson Taylor. So three short kind of stories of people's lives. Martin Luther, John Newton, J.C. Ryle. Some of you have never heard of any of these people. That's no problem. I think these are all really well written and really readable and very encouraging. And what I'm simply saying is when you read about other Christians who have followed Jesus in hard places at hard times, it will encourage you to endure and to persevere, to keep following Jesus, keep fighting the faith uh, for the faith. It says it's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. I think that's saying you keep believing the truth and it, keeps, it means you keep being faithful to the truth. So you keep doing the right thing. In other words, you did the right thing by coming to church today to hear the truth again. Did you know that the beast and the dragon did not want you to be here today? He doesn't want you to tell people that at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church they preach the Word of God kind of like line by line. They just kind of tell you what it's supposed to mean. They don't want you to do that because they don't want you to read the Bible. The way to keep walking in faith and faithfulness is you keep doing the right thing like showing up at church, telling people you love Jesus and they should too, things along those lines. And then in verse 18, so look at verse 10, the last line. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, of Christians. And then verse 18, another call. This calls for wisdom. How do you develop wisdom? How do you walk in wisdom? One of the ways Proverbs tells us, the book of Proverbs in the middle of the Bible, tells us that we learn wisdom by walking with wise people. So this is why I love to spend time with older Christians who have been Christians since before I was born. And if you have wondering whether you are one of those people... I turned 40 this year, okay? So, that you can figure out whether you're one of those people. But, I love talking to Christians and interacting with Christians who have followed Jesus 
decade after decade, from when they were young to in college, maybe at a secular university or a Christian university, what it looked like to follow Jesus as a newly wedded, what did it look like to follow Jesus when you were parenting young children, what's it look like to follow Jesus now that you're retired? These are all good questions. This is why we prioritize all ages worshiping together. We have children's ministry. We love to serve our children in that way. But if you want your children to be in here, that's awesome. I love to read the Bible to my kids. I love to have them sitting with you and singing with you and hearing you sing the truth. We think it's good to have college students sitting next to senior saints. We think it's good for men to be sitting next to women, and we could go on and on. We think that there's real value and benefit in us living the Christian life as a body together, not separating us off. Like, well, here's where the high schoolers go to the worship service, and here's where the college students go to the worship service. I know of churches like this, and I think it's garbage. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that out loud. But I'm saying we do it differently because we think the Bible tells us it's good for us to walk in wisdom. And one of the ways we walk in wisdom is by talking to the wise people who have been around the block more times than we have. Christians have faced immense pressure since the first church in Jerusalem started on the day of Pentecost. And it has continued to this day. And I want to read to you about a little section about people who were called the radical reformers. This is written by Stephen Nichols, who I referred to with the Church History ABC's book a few minutes ago. Stephen Nichols says, In many ways, the radical reformers, that we're talking in the 1500s here, were like all prophets, despised for challenging the status quo. They were John the Baptists, crying in the wilderness, looking different and beating out a different message for those who wished to be Christ's disciples. Their way of discipleship is not the only way, and good arguments could be made against some of their beliefs and practices, but their prophetic voice should still be listened to. They had a way of making those who didn't quite see things as they did uncomfortable in their assumptions. This probably, more than anything, led to their persecution. They still have a way of making onlookers uncomfortable in their assumptions. They are a visible reminder that we should not simply adopt the customs of the world. They remind us that we must think through the impact of culture on our faith and on our church and community. They remind us that ultimate reality is the kingdom of God. And this probably, more than anything, leads to their contribution, both to the Reformation and to the church today. Christian, I urge you, do not bow to the God-hating forces of this world. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, as we conclude this time of studying your word together, we pray that you would drill into our minds a burning desire to follow you, even when it is very difficult, when the pressures of this world economically and socially and religiously and politically and in every way make it difficult for us to do that because of the dragon and these two beasts that your word has told us about who hate us and want us to stop following Jesus and stop telling people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, they want us to think more about sports betting and fantasy football, and Facebook, and Instagram, then they want us to think about you. So Lord, may we be aware that we are in a battle. That everything we do is doing something to us, and may we fight with all that is within us for endurance, and faithfulness, and wisdom in the face of the God-hating forces of this world. In Christ's name, amen.